Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome, Calvary Quakertown. Uh, I was in Quakertown the last couple of weeks, and that reminded me why we need this series reset. I'm not sure if you ever noticed, but it's fairly treacherous going from Telford to Quakertown on Route 309. It's kind of like driving an obstacle course, right? Potholes every... Why didn't they fix that road during COVID when everything was shut down? Well, that, 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 that's another issue. Well, why do we need a series reset? Because wear and tear, time and trouble, knocks things out of whack. And so you've got to reboot your computer, hard reset your phone, realign the front end of your car when you're driving on 309. Wear and tear, time and trouble, knocks things out of whack. Well, that brings us to what the Scripture says, and it goes like this. We live in a culture where we're regularly bombarded with different narratives. And those stories tell us to live by a different set of priorities, live by a different set of values, live this way. Those ways are all different than God's way. And so regularly, we need to kind of have our minds and hearts reset to God's design and His plan. And lo and behold, as you read through the Scripture, you discover selfishness and sin knocks things out of whack. And so God loves us and cares for us and so regularly resets things. Just like, you know, the referee at the end of the game, we need to reset the game clock. Well, God resets. But, you know, all the resets fail until he sends Jesus the ultimate reset that changes things forever. But before the ultimate reset comes, There are lots of little resets that are pointing to Jesus and what he accomplished. Well, we've been looking at uh, Genesis 1 and 2 for three weeks now. I'm not going to give you a quiz. That'd be too humbling. Um, But this morning, we're moving from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, and we're going to discover Genesis 3 is all about a crisis, the crisis in the story. Now, that's probably raising it. Well, what's the story then? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, A number of years ago, we actually put the whole biblical story into six acts. How many of you remember that? Oh, good, good. Okay. We said, yeah, the Bible's a big, grand story, and it's important to know when you're reading something, where are you in the story? And it's always important to know where are we living today, what act of the story we're in. Well, let me just tell you the acts, and I'll tell you what the crisis of the story is. The Bible begins, and we've been looking for three weeks now, God creates, act one. God speaks, and everything comes into being. Act two, though, God is rejected. That's what we're going to look at today. That's the crisis. God's not content to let that be the end of the story, so he makes promises that an ultimate reset's coming. After the promise and all the reset failures God appears as the ultimate reset. He then sends us to continue that, and one day, the ultimate reset becomes the eternal reset as God restores things forever. Now, you have to understand the depth of the problem in order to understand the height of the solution. So in the beginning here, what I'm going to do I'm going to show you something you may have heard, but I want you to experience a little bit today. And here's that. The beginning and the end of the story 
are very similar. Now, I'm not going to reread the stuff from Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis 1 and 2 are all about an amazing beginning. God speaks. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Now, a couple of reminders. God did not begin at the beginning. God doesn't have a beginning. In eternity past, God existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a knowing, loving relationship where they were extending that in a purposeful way. God then creates so you and I can enjoy that experience that he had within himself from eternity past. Now, here's an easy way to remember Genesis chapter 1. God said it was so. God saw it was good. That's all Genesis 1. God said, and it was so. Whatever he said, that's what happened. He sees what he'd said happen, and he says, this is good. So Genesis 1, right, let, let's try it. Right? I'll say you, you, uh, you say the rest of it. God said, but I was weak. <laughs> if that's how it was, it wouldn't have been so. It would have been so-so, right? All right. God said, God saw. I hope you're doing that in Quakertown too. God said it was so. God saw it was good. That's Genesis 1. Now in Genesis 2, um, God, you know, the Bible kind of zooms in. Genesis 1, God creates the universe. He says it. It, it comes into being. He sees it. He evaluates it as being very good. Genesis 2 zooms in, and there we see a detailed account of the creation of Adam and Eve, right? The first human beings. We get that zoomed in account. And we learn a lot more detail about their creation than we did, than we did in chapter one. We're told that um, God creates Adam. Now, here's a really weird thing. Genesis 2, you check this out later. God looked, now remember Genesis 1? God said it was so, God saw it was good. In Genesis 2, before Genesis 3, God looks at something he created and he said, that's not good. What's not good? That man is alone. Now, God knows that. Adam doesn't quite know that yet. So God gives Adam an assignment. He said, Adam, I know you've got a problem here. You're alone. You don't realize that yet. You think life's good without you know, being alone. I'm going to give you an assignment. Go out and name the animals. That's not because God couldn't come up with good names, all right? He could have come up with better names than Adam, right? And so the animals come, and Adam's giving them all names. Hippopotamus, dog, platypus, cat. No, he didn't make them. <laughs> At the end of that assignment, Adam now realizes what God knew from the beginning. It's not good. So God then creates Eve as his partner. And so by the time we come to the end of chapter two, we've got man and woman living in peace, harmony, and partnership with each other, and peace, harmony, and partnership with God. That's incredible, right? So they're experiencing exactly what God intended. Peace, harmony, partnership, horizontally and vertically, yes. Now, I want to turn to the end of the story, all the way at the end. Um, I think it's like page 849 in your Bible or something like that, but you, you need to turn there and check this out. Let me read the first five verses from the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22. And uh, now you, you listen carefully, trying to remember what you learned the last three weeks. 
Then the angel showed, this is John writing, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Does that sound familiar? That's like deja vu all over again, right? I mean, that's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 fast forwarded to the end of the story. What's happening in Revelation 22 there's peace, peace between all of the human beings, horizontal, peace vertically between human beings and God, peace with their environment. This is peace, harmony, and partnership. That's how the story begins, and that's how the story ends. An amazing beginning, an awesome ending. Well, what the heck happened? Well, you've got to understand the beginning and know something about the end to understand the problem in the middle. There's a crisis in this story. And that crisis has depths and tentacles that we continue to see lived out and we experience today. But you've got to understand the intention and the destination to understand something about the problem. Well, now we're ready for the crisis. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 3, and I'm going to read the first five verses there. Since I read the first five of Revelation 22, let me read the first five here. And uh, you look at me, or you look at the Bible, not at me. <laughs> you follow me as we look at the anatomy of sin. And so here, here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. What we see and read described in the life of Adam and Eve, I suggest is the exact same process that happens in you and me every single day. We recapitulate this story daily. All right, here we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing for the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. That's the crisis. Do you notice the beginning of the story, peace, harmony, partnership? The end of the story, peace, harmony, partnership. But that's not where we live, right? Have you looked at the news online these last few days? Do you watch the news? Violence, destruction? Somebody murders his neighbors because... They ask him to be a little quieter. The kids are being kept up. Murder at the mall. 
exploitation, oppression, hatred, ridicule, slander. What the heck happened to peace, harmony, and partnership? Yeah, Genesis 3 happened. And it continues to happen. All right, now let let me kind of lay out what's going on. And let let me give you the backdrop. The backdrop's actually in chapter 2. And so it's up on the screen. You don't have to turn back. If you want, you can turn back. And here's what's going on. God says in chapter 2, right before the fall, God says, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Think about that. One prohibition. I don't know how many rules and regulations you had with your kids. I'm not sure many you had as a kid. God gives his first kids one prohibition. Only one. They don't have to memorize 10, don't need 613. They get one. And that's the one they break. Funny how that works, isn't it? Now, you need to understand, there's nothing poisonous in the tree. It's not like when they ate from the tree, all of a sudden they got infected with some disease and they died. No, this is not a tree of poison. This is a tree of decision. This is a tree of lordship. This is a tree that will answer the question, who will serve whom? That's the question. I know when you were a kid, you hated it when your parents would say, do that because I told you so, right? Now, let me ask you, how many times have you said that as a parent, right? We promised we'd never say We say it all the time, right? Because the little kids, they don't have the wherewithal, the framework and the backdrop to understand the prohibitions. Well, that's true with Adam and Eve and God. God knows they shouldn't eat from the tree. They know that when they do, the train's going to run off the rails. And so God says, don't eat from the tree because I said so. And he doesn't tell them why. He doesn't give them a cost-benefit analysis. He doesn't say, you know, I'll send you a spreadsheet. And on the spreadsheet, you'll see what the benefits are. No, God says, don't eat from the tree because I'm God. He's allowed to do that. Well, into that situation, chapter 3 happens. And we just read in verse 1, The serpent was more crafty than any of the animals God had made. And the serpent, we don't know how all this works, right? The serpent says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from from any tree of the garden? Um, Is that an honest question? Heck no. Does Eve know what God said? hopefully. Now, here's why I say that. When God gave that command in chapter 2, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, you know, tree of knowledge, good and evil, Eve was not there, only Adam. That means Eve was dependent on Adam fully communicating all the details to her about what God said. Now, ladies, let me ask you, only ladies can answer this question. Women, have you ever met a man that doesn't communicate fully all the details of the day? So I I don't know whether Adam failed to communicate, Adam left out important things, or whether he just said, what happened today? Oh, nothing really happened today. Uh, We don't know. 
But we do know, just like Genesis 3.1 says, the devil is crafty. He goes to the one who didn't hear firsthand what God said. And he doesn't ask an honest question. Eve knew what God said, hopefully. Adam knew what God said. The serpent knew what God said. And God knew what he said. Well, why in the world is he asking this dumb question then? Because he's not asking a question to get information. He's asking a question to change the context. He's asking a question to get Eve to doubt God's goodness. Can I paraphrase the question? The serpent says, um, now Eve, let, let me get this straight. Is it true that God put you into this garden with all these beautiful trees and obviously they're, you know, the branches are hanging almost to the ground with fruit and boy, the fruit sure looks good. God put you in this garden kind of like the, the end of a smorgasbord and he says, now don't you dare eat anything. What does he, no, no, God didn't say that. God said we can eat from it all except from the one tree. And then she adds to what God says. Eve was the first legalist, right? Eve's the first fundamentalist. Here's what she says, right? Don't eat from the tree and don't touch it. Now, I don't know why she added that. Maybe there was a good motive and maybe the motive was, you know what? If we don't get close enough to touch it, then surely we won't eat it. Well, it can be a good motive to create lots of rules around the rules that God says, but that's a problem, right? So Eve, the legalist, creates this other rule that God didn't give. She says that. She gets it half right, but adds something that's not there. She's doubting God's goodness. And here's the point. As soon as she doubts God's goodness, whose goodness replaces God's? Hers. She knows what's best for her, right? She knows how life should go. If you doubt God's goodness, you're trusting your goodness. Otherwise, you couldn't evaluate God's goodness, right? And so by doubting God's goodness, she's demoting God and she's promoting herself. She's now going to make a decision on whether she should doubt God or not. Hmm. I think we got a problem here, right? Well, where does doubting God's goodness lead? Always always and only to disobeying God's word. Has to happen. Those two are kissing cousins, friends. I'll say it this strongly. If you doubt God's goodness, you will disobey his word. You have to. And if you disobey God's word, before the disobedience, you doubted his goodness. If you really believe that God is good, he loves you, has, have, has your best interest in mind, You'll follow through with what he says. But if you're doubting that he's got your best interest, if you doubt that he knows what he's talking about, if you think you love yourself more than God loves you, well, if you doubt his goodness and you promote yourself, you got to disobey because you're trusting your goodness rather than his. Do you live out that drama? I live out that drama, maybe not daily, like hourly. I, I doubt that God has my best interest in mind. I doubt that God understands all the details. I doubt that God's going to make life go the way I know it should go. And so what do I do? I've got to take matters into my own hands then and kind of do what I can, leverage and manipulate to get what I know I should have. And if God knew better, he'd want that for me too, right? 
That's a problem. That's Eve's problem. That's Adam's problem. That's my. Pro- that's your problem too. It's always the same. Let me uh, see if I can explain it like this. A couple triangles here for you. Here's a triangle. Okay, now in this tri- the, the tri- a lot of things get mixed up, right? And the triangle isn't the best illustration, right? But here we go. At the triangle, God is at the top. Now, if I could have kind of disconnected the top and still have it try, I didn't know how to do that, right? But if I could disconnect, God is infinitely above. He's beyond, beyond. At the bottom of the triangle, we have creatures. We've got Adam and Eve made by God, and we've got the serpent created by God. So there's kind of an infinite gap between God and his creation. So there's an important point for you to remember. God has no equal. And God has no rival. Nothing is on that plane with God, right? He is infinitely above. He's beyond, beyond. He has no equal. He has no rival. This whole idea that, you know, God and Satan are kind of fighting, that's nonsense. God has no equal. Satan isn't God's evil twin and they're kind of worn out here. No, God has, he's above, above, beyond, beyond, right? Now, the way it was designed here, right, God as the creator, God, as God says, um, this is good and that is bad because I'm God and I said so. That means when Adam and Eve noticed that the serpent was in the garden, what should they have done? They shouldn't have engaged him in conversation. They shouldn't have brought him into their pool of consultants they should have thrown him out of the garden. And so they should have dismissed him from the garden. But instead of dismissing them, him from the garden, they begin to converse with him. And as they're conversing, their assumptions are changing. So here it is. Rebellion and sin are only 120 degrees off. That's the rebellion triangle right there. If you take that triangle, God at the top, Adam and Eve and the serpent at the bottom, and you rotate that sucker 120 degrees, you now wind up with Adam and Eve at the top, and you got the serpent and God at the bottom. That is what's happening in Genesis 3. Satan asks a question to change the mood. Satan asks a question to get them to turn the triangle 120 degrees. Now that it's turned, notice, even Adam don't say, God, we're dismissing your opinion. We don't want to hear from you. No, no, no. Here's what they're doing. Okay, God, you bring your recommendation. Share with me what you think we should do, and I'll be happy to entertain it. Send us the spreadsheet. God, you can be our coach. You can be our consultant. What do you think? And Satan, you know, serpent, what do you think we should do? Notice, They've put themselves in the position of now determining what's right and wrong, good and evil. That right there is the whole idea behind C.S. Lewis's book, God in the Dock. Now, that doesn't mean God's a boat coming into port, right? Dock was a legal term back in England, and here's how it worked. The judge sits at the bench. The witnesses come and sit in the dock. And the witnesses are then interviewed. They give their perspective. And on the basis of the witnesses' testimony, the judge makes decisions. What did Lewis say? 
Our main problem is we've taken God off the bench and we've moved them to the witness stand. So now Adam and Eve aren't saying, God, we don't care what you say. No, they're saying, God, give, give us your opinion. Share with us your recommendations. And serpent, what do you think we should do? And then Adam and Eve decide what's right and what's wrong. In fact, the word no, you know, you'll know good and evil. The word no can also mean choose. So when, when, it, when the verse says Adam and Eve will know good and evil, that doesn't mean they're going to know what's right and wrong. God already told them what's right and wrong. It doesn't mean they're going to experience right and wrong. It means they have now slipped from the receiver seat to the judge seat, and now they are determining what's right and wrong. And they don't have the wherewithal, the weight and the freight to sit in that seat. So what happens when they turn the triangle 120 degrees? All hell breaks loose. And the rest of the Bible, until God closes it in Revelation, is the fallout from that 120 degree turn. Whenever I think about the fall and I'm, I'm thinking like that, I'm reminded of my two grandsons. Not, not that they're terribly sinful, right? But, but here's what I'm reminded of. If you were to ask, I'll, I'll choose the younger one because he's a little wilder. Uh, if I were to say, Carter, can you drive mommy's SUV? What would three-year-old Carter say? Absolutely. I've seen mommy start the car and I've seen Mimi drive and I've seen that I can drive the car. I, how would you do it? Well, the first thing I'd do is I'd hit the little button, the engine would come on, and then that thing in the middle, I'd pull that down, and we'd go. Now, they live on Ridge Road, kind of at the high, and their driveway's high, and so if the car's facing out, uh, Carter could get in, he could, he could slip into the driver's seat, he'd have to stand up, and he could turn it on, and well, he got a foot on the brake, right? Um, he couldn't do that. And then he'd put it in gear, and they, he would go down the turn, and he'd wind up across Ridge Road, and if he wasn't hit by a car there, he'd wind up in the field behind his house, and that's a description of Genesis chapter 3. And here's a problem. He can't reach the brake. So wherever that car's going, it's going. And it's picking up speed, just like the story from Genesis 3. We don't have the height, the breadth, the wisdom, the knowledge, the wherewithal, or the capacity to sit behind the driver's seat of our lives in this world. And when we slip into that seat and demote God from that seat, all hell breaks loose. And we can't reach the break. That's Genesis 3. You got to know the depth of the problem in order to know the height of the solution. Now, here, here's kind of an interesting thing. In our world, if you mention the word sin, which is what Genesis 3 is about, you mention the word sin, there are two main responses. I'll tell you what, here's the first one. Oh, sin, that's an innocent indulgence. Oh, I sinned last night. I had an extra piece of chocolate cake. Oh, I sinned last night. This innocent indulgence, it's a snicker word, right? Oh, I sinned, you know, I, I told a little lie, but you know what? I got money from telling the lie, right? Everybody laughs. Innocent indulgence. Or, here's the newer one. You mention the word sin, it's intolerant judgment. You mention the word sin, sin's hate speech. Sin's bigotry. 
Here's why that's so dangerous. If sin is nothing more than innocent indulgence and everybody laughs, or sin is intolerant judgment, and we're looked down on for being narrow-minded bigots that hate people, right? Here's the problem. Without sin, you cannot accurately diagnose the problem. If you can't accurately diagnose the problem, what are the chances you can find the cure? And so by thinking of sin, and sometimes we, right, we live in a world of competing narratives, and to tell you the truth, sometimes those narratives, right, we need to kind of reset because those narratives take root in our brains. Sin, innocent indulgence, sin, intolerant judgment. But you know what? If we're kept from the solution. If you don't get the bad news from the doctor, you can't get the good news of the, of the cure. And that's where we live. And so maybe that... Uh, crafty serpent is really doing a work in our world. They say, oh, yeah, 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 that whole sin stuff. Anyway, that's innocent snicker word. That's intolerant judgment. And all the while, the problem can't be diagnosed, and the cure cannot be delivered. Well, we know from the rest of the story that God is not content to let Genesis 3 be the end of the story. That, that's not the end. You know, whenever I read Genesis 3, and if you've been here, you, you know I've said this before. The, one of the most amazing things to me about the Bible is that at the end of Genesis 3, we don't read the words, the end, exclamation point. God created God said it was so. God saw it was good. God creates human beings in his image to experience fellowship with each other, fellowship with him. One prohibition, that's the prohibition that they can't keep. They sin. The end. End of story. From the middle of Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22, the name of that story is grace. Because we don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. The ultimate reset is going to come in Jesus, and the eternal reset comes at his return. Well, that's not the end. So let me show you the end. In Revelation 12, the serpent reappears. And here's what we read. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent, oh, there he is, called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. I submit that when Christ died and rose again, Satan lost his accusatory, accusatory place. And now the one speaking to the Father is Jesus, who speaks on our behalf, not the devil. But that's not quite the final end yet. In fact, in Revelation 20, we read these words. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. He will be tormented day and night, forever and ever.
the end of him. The new beginning. It's called new heavens and new earth. Purchased by Jesus, delivered by him upon his return. And so you could put over a Revelation 20. We're done with him now. But we're not done with him today. We still wrestle with the doubting God's goodness, disobeying God's words thing, right? If you know the beginning and you know the end, you know where the sucker's headed, right? I'm not even asking you to do the spiritual thing. Do the wise thing. Get in step with the original intention, the ultimate destination, and you'll be living out in sync with the story. It's grace from the middle of Genesis 3 through Revelation 22. And that grace is delivered to us by Jesus Christ. Well, friends, next week, we're going to take time looking at the consequences that come from this crisis and at the first promise God makes that the ultimate reset is on the way. Let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, not just telling us how the story began, but for telling us how it ends. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd help us to live out your original intention as we experience the grace that Jesus provides today and help us to live in light of the ultimate eternal deliverance of that ultimate reset that never ends because of what Christ has done. We pray in his name. Amen.